0: lady who came forward, D.D. Gilbert, was baptized into Christ, and we rejoiced with her in that decision. Some were able to stay around and be a part of that, and, and we just wanted to let you know uh, of her decision and, and her uh, commitment to the Lord this day. Tonight we are beginning a new roundtable series. We just finished a series of sermons that we presented on uh, the, the uh, furniture in the tabernacle. It, has been, it was a tremendous study for each of us and hopefully for you as well and this evening we're going to transition to a study that will focus on the Judges, uh, those those individuals who led Israel during that unique period of time between the conquest of Canaan and the establishment of the United Kingdom. Uh, But in tackling this series we're not going to study our way through the book of Judges chronologically, nor are we going to focus on every one of the 15 Judges Uh, giving each one a single week. That's not going to be our approach. Instead, we're taking a college football approach to this study, and we're going to rank the judges much like the AP poll does every week. But we're only going to give you our top seven judges, Uh, because some of the judges only get mentioned in a single verse or in a, a single reference. And so we're going to engage in what we're calling Judging the Judges. And over the next several weeks, we're going to present to you our top seven judges. Now, you need to know one thing about our ranking system. Just like the AP poll, our ranking system is completely subjective. The way, we're going, the way we came up with our rankings was simply by looking at the stories of the judges and deciding the ones that we felt uh, were of significance Uh, the ones that we felt had great application for us today, and so it's a completely subjective ranking of these judges born in the minds of the ministers of the round table. And so, before we unveil who is judge number seven on the MR judges poll, that's ministers of the round table judges poll, we're first going to talk about the judges in general, and the first thing we want to talk about is what constitutes a judge. And, and 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 what is their uh, purpose, ultimately? Guys, y'all want to weigh in first?
1: Yeah, a judge. Uh, when we look at the scriptures, we can see that um, just because they aren't in the book of Judges doesn't mean they aren't seen as a judge. When we look back at the uh, story of Moses, not the story, but the, the account of Moses um, with Jethro, his father-in-law, it was said in that chapter, uh, that Moses was a judge over the people. Um, And so in in certain sense, you know, the judges are not limited to the book of Judges. In fact, there are two more judges on into the book of 1 Samuel. Um, So just a little thing to know about judges there. But on top of that, when we see the book of Judges specifically, the judges that we see in this book, um, they have been specifically chosen by God himself. To deliver Israel. Uh, we're going to see in a minute uh, what Israel continue to do in this cycle that they continue to see, find themselves in. And, and what happens is Israel is given over, uh, handed over by God himself to enemy nations because of their sinfulness and their unfaithfulness. And then when they cry out to the Lord, God, God raises up. A judge raises up a deliverer to deliver the people. So when I see the word judge, try to understand what it means. It's it, to me, it's, it's really just someone who, on behalf of God, delivers his people.
2: Yeah, I think about chapter 2 and verse 16, which I think we're going to read in a second. Yes. But it's part of the terminology I want to pull from. Is, the Lord raised up Judges. So when I think about judges, I think about these leaders, and I think when I was growing up, I was a little I don't say misled. I think I just had a mis um, kind of understanding of them. I thought they were just kings with a different title. You know I thought, okay, there's Moses, there's Joshua, there's the kings that we call those guys judges, but they're the kings, right? And then we have then we have Saul and David. But in reality, know, a lot of this is more regional leaders, right? We've got different leaders in certain areas being raised up, to say, okay, at this part of the country we're going to have this man kind of stand up and he's going to lead this battle, right? Or maybe in this part of the country at a different time. There might be kind of overlapping judges multiple times because this is not a king, this is not a judge over the whole nation, but a man who is appointed by God, raised, i want to talk about that in a second, raised by him. To, to be the leader in that area for this time and for maybe a very specific purpose. So I think of the Judges in that sense and you're learning that while I was growing up. Um, the other thing when I think about the Judges is that term being raised up, right? There's only a handful of prophesied, ber- prophesied births in all of the Bible. Think about two of those being these Judges. Think of Samson and think of Samuel, right? And so in that you've got these men and you think about here Um, and and, uh, you've got other judges as well being almost we had this idea having known from the beginning that okay there's something special about this son of mine there's something special about you know if you're the the leader there's something special I have a calling in my life and so there's a personal these men were raised up almost trained up to be these deliverers while other times like in a Deborah situation they were raised up in a sense of they were you know God said okay you're going to stand up now and so I like the, the imagery of that, that these were either plucked up, raised up, something like that, that God said, okay, either from birth or for now, because of the need, you are going to rise above everybody else because they're silly, and yeah. <laughs> the, the nation is acting uh, not so smart, but you're going to stand up. I'm going to raise you up, and you're going to know right.
0: Uh, what a great observation there about two of the judges being some of the prophesied uh uh, births in Scripture, and it's interesting as, as you uh, appeal to the deliverer motif. Uh, tonight, the judge we're going to focus on uh, will have that very title. It's interesting because when we hear the term judge, we, we think of somebody who um, adjudicates, who who who's involved in a courtroom setting.
1: And I've never thought of the adjudicate. word adjudicate. I don't in know. My I life. said the wrong yeah. word.
0: I know it. But I mean, we'll I, it makes it. sense to me. I like it. You I'm a, preachers make up it, words. I mean,
1: you are pontificating <laughs> up here.
0: All right, go ahead. All right. Well, at least I'm not <laughs> prostrating again.
1: Well, let's not um. do that.
0: All right. Anyway, judges, we view them in the courtroom setting. We view mm-hmm. them as that terminology makes us feel like it's somebody passing uh, a decision in a courtroom. And that's not entirely what they do. And, and it, it's born out of, in large respects, the advice Jethro gave to Moses back in the book, back in, in, in during the Wilderness Wanderings about, hey, you need to, you need to appoint judges to help make these decisions. But when you get into the book of Judges, Deborah is the only one who specifically accomplishes that or does that. And we get into these guys who are more in the realm of deliverers, more in the realm of military leaders, Mm -hmm. and very specifically not kings. I I, I Mm -hmm. appreciate what Jay was saying there because you'll get to a guy like Gideon who's going to reject the opportunity to be king because he understood that the relationship Israel was supposed to have with God at that time was for him to be king. And so they're, they're kind of... Regional leaders, and they're very much temporary leaders. They're, they're intended to bridge a gap in the in the history of, of Israel uh, that, without the, the uh, point person of Moses or the point person of Joshua, and and they're intended to to help bridge the gap for for uh, as God uh, alleviates the oppression that they're facing. And, and most of the time, it's going to involve some sort of military conquest, and and that's that's how they're going to uh, relieve the oppression in some fashion. So, the judges are a unique category when we specifically look at these 15 men and one, or 14 men and one woman who fulfill that role. Uh, but now let's talk about the t- era of the judges. Let's take a moment to consider what the times are like then. And I'd like you to open up to Judges chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 11 through the end of the chapter. And I just want you to hear what's going on in this time period. Judges chapter 2, verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer... Withstand their enemies whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed, transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. When we look at this uh, section of the, judge, uh, of the book of Judges and get a feel for the era, what, what stands out to you as a reason to study the Judges? Why should we invest the time to, to examine this book based on what we just read?
2: Okay, so we, I see judges in the context of Joshua, and you see this kind of great comparison. You, know, you look back at Deuteronomy 28 when God, you know, is kind of laying out the law of the covenant and everything. Okay, if you follow me, here's all the blessings. And if you forget me, here's all the things that will happen, right? And just, you know, and so you have Joshua, you, those are the blessings. You, you have the children of Israel following God, still doing great things. And then half the book of Joshua is just, okay, and you get this land, you get this land, and you get, you know, it's an incredible list of blessings from them following God. And we get to the book of Judges, and we have what you just read. And so then from now, chapter 2 for the rest of the book is, and this is all the consequences of not following God. And so you see kind of this, um, to use a kind word, the dichotomy. It's not your <laughs> word, it's just a big word. Um, you see the, the kind of the relationship of ups and downs. And it's, uh, if you've ever been on a roller coaster, if you read the book of Judges, it is almost nauseating at times, because yeah. it's just up and down, up and down, up and down, in the sense of... As soon as God has an appointed leader, and there's one man that's saving them from physical harm, they're like, "Yes, God is great." And then he passes away, and now we forget God again. And now we have another leader, and now we forgot him again. And so I read this one to see how silly I look in the eyes of God at times when I do that, because I read the Book of Judges and just shake my head, going, "This is ridiculous." And then I look at, you know, you know, if I could look back at the last, I don't know, 10 years of my life, it's up and sound. You know, and it's like, ah, yes, this does look familiar for a reason. But also with that, it remind, you read the book of Judges because look at how every single time God continues to save them. Now, Paul would comment on this and say, okay, well, let's not take advantage of this grace. But the point is made that the grace is there. That the God we serve is that loving that every time that they had forgotten him again that he still felt pity you know you know what i'm saying there's no fool me once fool me twice you know it's i'm i'm here for you there, there will be consequences because i promise you'll there be consequences and you will feel those consequences but after you've learned after that lesson has been felt i'll be there for you and so i think the compassion of god the patience of god is on full display in the book of judges
1: yeah to me it's just, just another way of looking at it i think um when I look at the book of Judges, I see, I, I, I think we can see things from God's perspective. Just like Jay's saying, it's, a lot of times when we live our life, we can only see the failure and um, the mistakes after the fact, right? Uh, but the book of Judges is almost a zoomed out perspective of the whole of Israel, the whole of their history in, in, during this time, it's this zoomed out perspective of what it must look like to God for the Israelites to have this roller coaster up and down faith. And how sad of an image that truly is to God, I'm sure. How annoying it is to God, I'm sure. And the same message that Jay said about it applying to us and applying to me individually, personally tonight. Um, it just must be that much fr- more frustrating when I do that. Uh, because I, I can look at the book of Judges. You know, these people are living it out. They can't learn from their own mistakes until after they've made them. I can look back and, and learn from those mistakes and realize that I'm still doing it mm-hmm. to this day. And um, I, I love verse 14 and 15. I think there's a relationship to the New Testament here. Uh, he delivered them into the hands of the plunders. Uh, what would your translation say? Gave them over. He gave them over. Uh, to me, that just is an instant parallel to what we see in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is talking about the sinfulness of the Gentiles and the sinfulness of, of, of people in their culture, in that society, even within the church, that that were handed over. They were given over to their own passions and their own desires, committing things that were unbelievable in the sight of God, abominable in the sight of God. They were given over by God. God allowed them to be handed over to their own sins and their own sinfulness and their, their own oppressions that they were putting on themselves. As to what we see in the book of Judges over and over and over again, God handing them over uh, to the enemy, uh, even strengthening that enemy so that they could see how destitute they truly were. And so this book, honestly, to me, is a constant reminder over and over again. This is what life with God looks like. Where you are mine and I take care of you and you are not oppressed and you are not captive and you are not in slavery. This is what it looks like when when I am with you. And this is what it looks like when I'm against you. This is what life looks like when you don't have me. It is slavery. It is captivity. It is oppression. It is all the different, it's death and and destruction every day. And so that's why I like to look at the book of Judges. I think we can learn a lot from it in our own lives. Is God with me? Or am I against God?
0: It's interesting because as I hear both of you talk about it, it's like Judges is a great mirror for us to look in because we see ourselves in it. And one of the things that really stands out to me are the heroes in the story, the, the, the judges, the deliverers. Because when you look at Old Testament heroes, some of them you look at and go, I can never be like that. I, I look at David, and sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm astounded. At the, even though we know his great sin uh, with Bathsheba and things like that, there, there are elements of his life that I'm, I'm just like, I, I don't know that I could be like David or, or Moses. And, and uh, the, in his leadership of Israel, and even though he made mistakes, and even though he was reluctant to be a leader, I can look at Moses and, and sometimes go, I, how did he put up with all that? I, I can't be like Moses. Or Abraham, with his great faith to abandon family and nation, and just walk out, follow God on, on God's promises. So I, Sometimes I look at those heroes and I'm like, I, I'm just not there. But I can look at the judges and these are very flawed individuals that I can relate to. I can relate to Gideon, who needs God to prove himself sometimes. Uh, not, that, not that that's right. I'm just saying I can relate to a guy who has, has this struggle with doubts and, and needs some fleece on the ground. I, I can relate to a guy like Jephthah who's going to put his foot in his mouth in a major way. I can do that quite well. I can relate to a guy like Samson who has his own series of temptations and, and sometimes gets so self-absorbed that he, doesn't, he, that he forgets that his power is from God and not from himself. I can relate to these guys in a, in a large way and, and yet I can turn to the book of Hebrews and go into chapter 11 and look in the Faith Hall of Fame and guess what? Here are names listed in verse 32 of the Hall of Faith. Gideon, Barak, who is connected with Deborah, Samson, Jephthah, and then David and Samuel. So I, I, I can, these guys are still esteemed for their faith and they serve in a unique way as a metaphor for what Jesus does for us because they come along and they deliver out of oppression, out of slavery, out of sin, these people in Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us, and so it serves as a constant reminder of of Christ's purpose in my mind. So there's plenty of reasons for us to study the book of Judges. It relates so well to us that the the culture of that era is not unlike the culture we battle in ourselves today, and the heroes are not unlike ordinary people today that God will use and achieve great things with. So there's plenty of reasons to study Judges. And with that, let's turn to the third chapter of Judges, and we're going to address Judge number seven on our MR Judges poll. Again, these are not going in any specific order other than our subjective determination, and we've decided that at number seven, we're going to talk about Ehud. Now, Ehud is the second judge mentioned in the book of Judges, and we're not going to read the entirety of his account, uh, but Ehud is uh, the first major story that we find in the book of Judges. And there are two characters in Ehud's story, and, and, and we're going to talk about both of them individually very quickly. Ehud is the, he is the protagonist, and there are a few things we learn about him in this, this account. First thing I want to mention is, is we have his name. His name is interesting for the simple fact that it, that it means where is the splendor or where is the majesty. It's a rhetorical question in his name. And it references the fact that at that time, the people were despondent. The the glory days of Joshua were long gone. The the glory days of Jericho following, of the Jordan River being parted. The the glory days of these significant leaders has passed, and, and, and they're starting to wonder, where is God? Here we are under the oppression of another nation, under a king that is not our king, Where is the splendor? Where is the majesty? Ehud's name speaks to that. And if if you notice in verse 15 of Judges chapter 3, Ehud is going to be referred to as a deliverer. He's not specifically called a judge, he's called a deliverer. And that's unique because as we pointed out in in our description of what the judges are, that's that's their major contribution. They are deliverers. And in this story, Ehud is going to be a deliverer on two fronts. Literally speaking, he's going to be a deliverer of a tribute to a foreign king. He's going to be the one who's delivering the goods from the people to pay the king off. But in the grand scheme, he's going to be the deliverer of the people from oppression from that king. So his name speaks to the times, and his title addresses what his function is going to be throughout the story. But that's not the only thing we learn about Ehud, and I'm going to let these guys chime in with the other details we learned.
1: In verse 15, you're going to see that uh, Ehud was the son of Gerah, the Benjamite. And so I want to focus on the fact that he was a Benjamite because... Benjamin, right? Benjamin? Benjamite? Greatest tribe of all time. Uh, Greatest strength of schedule. Uh, Head-to-head, Matt. I'm just kidding. Um, So I think when I think of this Benjamite, uh, I think there's something more than just him listing what tribe he's from. I think there's something more... Uh, that the author is doing here, hand in hand with uh, what the next attribute is, of course. It's just this interesting note that he is a Benjamite because if you go back to the book of Genesis and you go back to the er origin of Benjamin, the son of Jacob, uh, Jacob named him Benjamin because he was to be the son of his right hand. This is my right hand, but to y'all... His right hand, right? He was going to be, he was going to be by his side uh, throughout the rest of his life. The son of my right hand. And so uh, that's what the name Benjamin means. The son of my right hand. The, the close uh, son that is going to be by my side. And so there's something very interesting going on with what the author is doing with what he says next. So he's yeah. the son of my right hand, but he is...
2: He's left-handed, which is pretty interesting. Um, and it's interesting for a few different reasons. And really to start, one of the first things that you kind of find interesting is when you look at the, the phrase that's used here to say um, a left-handed man. What the, the idiom that's used here is only used twice in the Bible, and in both times it's talked about a Benjamite. And what that, the idea behind that is he is restricted in his right hand. He is not able to use his right hand like his left And so some scholars believe, you know, know, obviously that could just mean that well he's just a left-handed guy. But because we have so many um, examples of almost every Benjamite that we know being left-handed, later on in Judges chapter 20, you have 700 warriors all left-handed from the tribe of Benjamin. First Chronicles says there's, uh, I think I wrote it down, uh, a squad of ambidextrous soldiers, mainly you know left-handed from the tribe of Benjamin. And so some scholars think that because of maybe some of what Ben was talking about here that from a young age they're training the Benjamite soldiers. Any man in the tribe of Benjamin is trained, maybe they, he can write right-handed, he can, you know, he can bat right-handed, but when he's in battle, when he's slinging, when he's throwing, when he's fighting, he's going to always fight with his left hand. So that's the interesting thing right off the bat, right off the bat when it comes to maybe his upbringing, that he was trained to be a left-handed man. So why is that, so, why is that, why is that even something to consider, right? Well, just like when you watch baseball today, a left-handed pitcher comes on the mound. You know, maybe someone doesn't watch baseball is like, okay, now he's throwing left-handed. But if you're a batter, that's really going to throw you off, right? Because you have trained going up and hitting against a right-handed pitcher. So when a lefty comes up, that really throws you off. Well, the same thing's the case in battle. When you're sparring and when you're learning to fight, you are learning to fight 99% of the time against a right-handed warrior. And so in battle, when you show up and you start fighting someone who has a, a slightly mirrored fighting style, their shield is on the other arm you're used to defending, then that throws you off. And so I believe the tribe of Benjamin is trying to hit a, strong, a strength here by being unique in this. And it's really interesting, you can even look more into this, castles from back then all the way up to just a few centuries ago are still being built. And the, If there's a spiral staircase, it's, it's uh, built so that if you were um, attacking the castle, You had to hold your spear in your left hand, which is most often your your non-dominant hand. But if you're defending the castle, so if you're coming down the stairs, right, you're defending your place, it's going to wind to the left so that as you come down you can throw with your right hand. However, if you're left-handed, that's a strength of yours. So now we have this left-handed man going into a castle, going into a stronghold. And he places a hidden... He makes the dagger himself. He could, maybe he's number seven because he's the coolest, right? He makes the dagger himself. We think it's about a foot, foot and a half long. And when they were getting checked back then, you go to see the king, you know, and you go to see a leader just like now. You get patted down. Where are the weapons at, right? Well, back then, you, if you were right-handed, you're going to hide all your weapons where? On your left side. You're going to draw, you want to draw from the, the opposite side of your body and be able to pull out that sword or grab that whatever, Right? And so when they're checking him, they're patting him down, and what scholars like to think is, they well, just patted his left side, didn't feel anything, and let the guy go through, right? <laughs> However, what's, what's he hood? He's, he's left-handed. So where's his dagger? Hidden on his right thigh, ready to be pulled at a moment's notice that no one thought of. So it's, it's a throwaway comment, a left-handed man, right? But, man, when you start looking into it, it unlocks a lot of uh, just interesting facts yeah. about the story.
0: Absolutely, and that is one reason why he's making our list because there's so unique details here. Mm -hmm. And those unique details extend over to the other main character in the story, the antagonist whose name is Eglon. And he's the king that Ehud is going to take tribute to. And there's a few things we're told about Eglon. I'll lead us off. One of the things we're told, particularly down in verse 17, is that Eglon was a very fat man. There's not a lot of people in in the Bible who are specifically specifically called out for their obesity, but Eglon is. In fact, one of the interesting things, he's he's so obese that when in the story Ehud stabs him in the belly, the fat of Eglon closes over the sword and Ehud leaves it in his belly. This guy was enormously fat, and the Bible is very specific about it. And that's so intriguing because we don't get that detail very often. What also is interesting is Eglon's name is connected in, in the Hebrew. It's similar to the word for calf. And so a lot of uh, scholars make the connection between Eglon and, and the fattened calf that is going to be slaughtered for a feast. And, and uh, so there's this uniqueness of his name involved in this as well. But let's talk about... The fact that he's fat, the fact that he's overweight, and I feel so weird doing this right now, but his obesity speaks to his wealth and his power. He is requiring tribute of his subjects, of the Israelites. Their tribute, more than likely, is not coinage. More than likely, it's animals and agriculture. More than likely, what they have to bring to him as tribute is actually food supplies. Ehud's not delivering that tribute alone. He's bringing it with a caravan of people because they have to bring so much. And it's likely in the realm of animals and agriculture. And so there's a sense in which Eglon's weight reveals that he's a man of great wealth who's consuming everything he's gaining from people. And it shows that he's a man who lacks self-control and wisdom. One thing that's going to stand out to the story is that Eglon does not make good decisions. This guy named Ehud who's going to bring him tribute is going to be allowed into his chambers of his palace and allowed to be in there alone without any protection. That's not a smart decision if you're a king to allow one of your subjects from another nation to be in your presence without you having some sort of protection. So his weight speaks to his wealth, and it speaks to his lack of wisdom to a degree as well. But that's not the only detail we know about Eglon. Ben, you want to share yours?
1: Yeah, so uh, we're going to see that he is the king of Moab. Moab. There's a lot of rich history when it comes to Moab and the Moabites throughout the Old Testament. Um, specifically, if you remember back to Numbers chapter 22 and, and following, we, we get this great narrative, this great account of what happened between the Moabites and the Israelites in the time of Moses uh, you can go back and you can see uh, King Balak uh, got Balaam to pronounce a curse on the Israelites and we can see that the Moabites started to infiltrate the Israelites in their morality and started to convince them to worship idols and to do other sinfulness and and so we see this this huge uh, history between the Moabites and the Israelites in the time of the Exodus. And what's interesting to me is that what happens there in Numbers chapter 22 and following is a theme throughout the rest of Scripture. Over and over again in in, in the New Testament, in 2 Peter chapter 2, in Revelation chapter 2, the events that happen in Numbers chapter 22 are called back. Uh, with the sinfulness of Balaam or with the doctrine of Balaam or with the false teaching of Balaam. If you remember in our study of the seven churches of Asia, we looked at that in Revelation chapter 2, the sin of Balaam. It's going back to this Moabite, Israelite encounter that happens in the book of Numbers. And so it's interesting to me. Why is it interesting? Well, what's interesting to me is verse 12. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Here we have this story, this history of Moab infiltrating the Israelites and causing them to sin and causing them to be idolatrous. And we see in that story, ultimately, the Israelites did not succumb fully to the Moabites. They finally got hold of themselves and start acting right. But here we have many years later, God, God himself, strengthening this enemy nation, strengthening the king of this enemy nation, strengthening the nation that once took Israel away from God. God realizes his only end, his only way to save his nation is to go to the enemy and strengthen them. That's how far away the Israelites had come. And so there's this interesting relationship between Moab and Israel. And ultimately, you know, we have this great victory in the book of Numbers where they don't follow through with it. And here, they're completely oppressed, and God was the one who made them that way.
2: Yeah, the only other thing really to note about um, Eglon is where he's sitting at. Right? the city that he's residing in right now, the last time the, and the city is Jericho. And the last time Jericho is mentioned, really within, with any significance, is back in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 26, is right after the, the conquest of Jericho. So this, there's this huge, you know, Israel tra- you know, uh, travels into the promised land for the very first time. And what's the very first city they come up against? The city of Jericho, right? And so after it uh, falls, after a week of marching and God's power is put on display, Joshua pronounces a curse. Whoever builds this city again, right, and then announces some curses. And so this, we see now, the very next time that Jericho is mentioned, where is uh, Eglon residing in? It's in Jericho. And so he's cursed. We see what happens to him. But then later on in 1 Kings, the, the next guy that's really recognized for rebuilding it for the first time, he's cursed, and his, and his first burn, firstborn dies as well. And, and then Kyle, he mentioned this to me. The really interesting thing about Jericho is it's not even, Moab. It's not even in Moab. Eglon is residing in a city, he is the king of the Moabites, he is this leader, and he's residing in a city that's not even in there. It's like he wanted to be in this city to maybe rub it in even more. You're going to bring me the tributes in Jericho, the place that used to be the image bearer, the, the, the conquered city, right? Now that city has been conquered by me. And so it's just an interesting side note of where he's sitting at.
0: So those are the details of the two main characters. And, and let me just give you a quick review of the story just for the sake of time. You know, Eglon defeats Israel and makes them his subjects for 18 years. He apparently treated them harshly, making them pay uh, an exorbitant tribute to him every, all the time. On this occasion, Ehud is appointed to be the one to deliver that tribute to Eglon at Jericho. And with that assignment, Ehud decided it was time he could take advantage of of his presence before the king and eliminate him. So we're told that Ehud cre- crafted a double edged sword that he secretly secured under his clothes on his right hip. And after presenting the tribute to Eglon and being dismissed with his caravan, Ehud turned around. They made it to uh, a particular location where some idols were set up, and that's where Ehud turned around, went back to the castle. And informed the king really got another presence before the king by saying that he had a secret message for the king, a secret message from God. When, when uh, Eglon heard this, he dismissed everybody from his chamber and so it was just him and Ehud. And Ehud's secret message was a dagger in the gut. <laughs> he stabbed the king in the belly and it killed the king. What Ehud managed to do at that point was to escape the city because the king's attendants thought the king was in the bathroom that whole time. And so they did not want to disturb him. When they finally reached the point that they were embarrassed, the text says, when they, when they were, realized they have waited an exorbitant amount of time to go check on the king, they go in there and find him sprawled out dead on the floor. By that time, Ehud's out of the territory and he's rallying the troops. They gather at the Jordan River and they execute all the Moabites. That's the basic premise of the story. And the real question, since we are engaged in judging the judges, that I want to, to get to at this point is, do we rate Ehud as a good and righteous judge or a not so good and righteous judge? And that might sound strange to say, but we will encounter judges in this study that weren't necessarily always good. So how would you rate Ehud? Rate, um, Ehud on the scale of an example to follow or an example not to follow?
1: You know, I look at Ehud, and I hear that story, and the first thing that comes to mind is I wish, you know, one of these amazing movie directors would make a movie (laughs) about Ehud the Benjamite. I mean, this guy is a legend in my mind. I, I don't know if I'm just missing something here, but I think Ehud is amazing because Ehud... Has been raised up by God Himself, by Yahweh, to deliver the people of Israel, to be this deliverer of the enemy, uh, against the enemy Moabites and this, you know, awful King Eglon. The only thing we know about him is that he's fat, right? Here comes Ehud, and he has been called to, to deliver the people of Israel from Moab. And he goes in there and he, by himself, cuts the head off the snake, so to speak, by killing the king, the enemy king that was oppressing God's people. As a deliverer, if you just go on the term judge, cow's cramping. Yep. <laughs> if, you go off the, if you go off of the definition of judge that we talked about earlier with this deliverer, uh, Ehud fits the bill. Uh, he is a deliverer by the very sense of the word. He goes in, he kills the enemy king, Eglon, and then he rallies the troops, so to speak, and kills 10,000 Moabites. 10,000 Moabites, if you look uh, at verse 28, he says, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand, he says to the Israelites. So he doesn't take the credit all to himself. He, he isn't this guy that wants the glory. He gives God the glory. That God has delivered his people through me. I think it's an amazing story. And then at the end, I don't know how we can see this as something else. When we look at verse 30, it says, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for eighty Because of what Ehud did when he had the courage and the boldness to face the king alone. Because of that boldness, the land of Israel was at rest for 80 years, 8 decades. So I think it's an amazing legacy. I think it's an amazing story for us to look at.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that 80 years is the longest. I think, uh, now I'm trying to remember, I think Judges covers like 480 years, something like that, right? 450, 480. And this period of peace is the longest peace they have in that whole period. And that's because of God and the actions that God was working through Ehud here. Yeah, when I first read Ehud, it's, it's hard to find the negative, right? This is an amazing story. It's an epic narrative. He has that great, one of the best you know, mic drops of the Old Testament, like you were mentioning a second ago, when it comes to when he says, now he's finally alone with the king one-on-one. He goes, I have a message from God, right? It reminds me of the movie, uh, the two protagonists that always said, we're on a a mission from God. So he says, I have a a message from God for you. And then stabs the guy. And so I believe if God was displeased with this. So in in studying this, I said, okay, what's the one negative here? Well, maybe the one negative is that he went rogue, right? Is that God says, "I've, I've I've raised up a deliverer, and he could have just skipped to verse 28, right? Verses 15 through 27, I guess didn't have to happen. Maybe Ehud just stands up in front of all the Israelites and says, okay, let's go to battle. And with God on their side, they could have just walked into the city and they could have won, right? But uh, Ehud goes out of his way, maybe, to take it in this more epic, more individual kind of victory route. However, if that was a problem with God, if that was outside of God's plans there, then then I believe in verse 28, God would, have not, would not have given them success. Mm-hmm. Because he would have said, okay, Ehud, you put that on your own shoulders. Yeah. You know. And so I think, though, there might be some negative connotation that you could say, well, maybe he, you know, he went out of his way to make the victory more about him. Where in reality, I think God would have, if that was, was an issue, I think God would have spoke to that and God would have answered that. Because in the end, the warriors are rallied, 10,000 Moabites are slain. 80 years of peace. I mean, that's a generation and a half back then. You can almost say two generations for that, that day and age yeah. of peace to a nation that won't have that for a long time.
1: Yeah, and, and just real quick, I think uh, in my studies, this is the only example in the book of Judges where the head of the snake, the, the king, mm. was killed first. Usually there's this epic battle uh, that oh, yeah, ends yeah, and in the-, the-, the killing of the leader. Mm-hmm. And it, it, um, Ehud just flips, it, flips the script and just takes care of the top dog at, at the beginning. I think that's why it just speaks to me as this guy that's just epic. Oh, yeah.
0: Personally, I don't disagree with either of you. Mm-hmm. But let me play devil's advocate for a second. There are other leaders in Scripture who are raised up by God who aren't necessarily um, faithful to Him. Let's take Nebuchadnezzar, for example. Nebuchadnezzar is chosen by God to be this uh, individual who um, gets justice on the Israelites for their, faith, for their lack of faithfulness to God. And scripture specifically speaks to God having used Nebuchadnezzar in that regard. What was interesting to me in my studies, and again, I don't disagree with these two guys, but in my studies there's a lot of scholars who question whether or not Ehud should just be viewed as a vigilante because of a particular statement. Now, it's obvious the text says the Lord raised him up to be a deliverer, and it's obvious that Ehud said the Lord has given your enemies into your hands. Those, those statements are very correct and true, and they speak to the Lord God alone. But there is this other statement that doesn't appear. We're told that the Spirit of the Lord was upon some of the other judges. You can go back a few verses to, to verse 10 of, of Judges chapter 3, and Othniel, the first judge, the Spirit of the Lord was on, upon him. Other judges that receive that terminology are Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Samson on multiple occasions. It may be a statement that speaks more to their military prowess or their might, but the same statement gets applied to King Saul when he's first appointed and to King David. And later, the Spirit of the Lord departed from King Saul when, he, when the Lord had to reject him due to his disobedience. And so some scholars argue That maybe Ehud, though raised up by God in the sense that God is going to use him like he used Nebuchadnezzar, maybe Ehud was acting more independently, as Jay was mentioning, than he was being directed divinely by the Lord's will. Maybe it wasn't so much that the Lord was saying, hey, I want you to go build a dagger and go kill Eglon. Maybe it's more that God's just using him to accomplish the defeat of the uh, Moabites than he's directing every step. That's just an argument that, that, that scholars have raised in regards to Ehud. And I do think, to some degree, it, it speaks to this idea of be careful to approach God's will with a vigilante mindset. And um, this will transition us into talking about applying this story to today. But we have these instructions in the New Testament to be subject to our governments. Um, whether you're talking about Romans 13 or, or over in 1 Peter, we have these instructions uh, to be subject to the governing authorities. And we need to be careful to take Ehud's story and say, "Who that gives me permission to act in whatever way I want in regards to our government. Uh, because if you look at, at Jesus Christ, he submitted to governing authorities when he surrendered in the garden. When you look at Paul... He used his Roman citizenship and asserted it at times, but he also submitted to governing authorities. And so I I do think there's a sense in which we shouldn't look at Ehud's story and go, oh, that gives me the opportunity to handle my disagreements with the the government whatever way I want. That just because government government is not cooperating with the Lord's will, then I need to intervene in whatever way I see fit. I I think there is a, a warning that should be issued there. Uh, Because ultimately what Ehud's story really is about, to me, is I think there is an element of preparation. God can use whoever he wants to accomplish his will. Ehud was prepared for that. And so if we look at Ehud, look at him as somebody who's prepared for whatever mission God calls him to. And that should be the same for us. That's why we're instructed to to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. To be ready and equipped to stand against the schemes of the devil because we're prepared. So, uh, th- so that's one thing that I take away.
1: You know, I just want to address the scholars. Which are wrong. That are listening in on this roundtable uh, tonight. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, when, I, when I think about that idea, I, I think we look at the story of uh, Saul sparing King Agag. And is that what you're thinking? Well, I was thinking, yeah, if, Samu- if Samuel yeah, did had saying, the spear of the Lord, so, he's a pretty good guy. So Saul Samuel. spared mm-hmm. King Agag, or yeah, Saul spared King Agag, in, uh, in, as you mentioned. And that's what made the spirit of the Lord leave Saul. Mm-hmm. And here comes Samuel. When he sees Agag, and he doesn't go, you want me to take care of this? You know, he, he just takes that sword and takes care of business Close and kills Agag that. right then and there in front of everybody. And we laud, Samuel, for such um, an action, for such dedication to, to delivering God's people. Yet again, and I see Ehud doing a very similar thing here. In, uh, in, in, in doing whatever it takes to free the Israelites from oppression. And so when we transition into, for, for me, what this story, uh, with, what this biblical account of this judge, what, what it matters to me is, you know, God says and he promises, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, he said, Paul says, God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. And a lot of times we stop the verse right there. And we're like, man, God is great. God is able to do more than I ever imagined right in my life. And we see that all throughout the book of Judges. We see that in this story, God was able through a Moabite enemy nation through this left-handed guy to kill this you know, king. God's able to do amazing things. But what is the rest of the verse... Ephesians 3 and verse 20 say. It says, according to the power that works in us. So God is able to do amazing things, but only if we're able to let him do it. Only if we're able to take an action because of that power. God is powerful. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly, but he depends on you and me to actually do something, to actually take action in our life. So when it comes to sin, God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that I asked or think. But it don't mean nothing if I'm not willing to do something about it myself. God is able to do amazing things, but it means nothing for my life if I'm not willing to allow him to do so. And that's what I get from the story of Ehud. He's done amazing things to raise him up but if he doesn't actually go and do it himself, what does it mean? And so Ehud, I see, takes that call and understands that God is so good, and he takes it with his own hands and gets the job done. And it's something that's inspiring to me because oftentimes, if I'm faced with you know the metaphorical Eglon in my life, <laughs> I don't know if I always have the courage to face him face to face and do what it takes to take care of it.
2: Yeah, I'll just quickly just speak to that very last part you said in the sense of the confidence that Ehud. I read this and I go, man, Ehud was confident that God was with him. He, you might, you could say he put the team on his back, right? I mean, he said, okay, I'll take care of this because I know God is with me. And so he goes into that room one-on-one, he goes in the most, you know, he could have gotten found out a hundred different ways in this. And yet he sticks it out knowing that God is with him and he handles business. And so what I'm taking away from that in my life is if I know God is with me, that I need to be confident and I need to take those steps that are maybe are bold, that are maybe um, scary, very dis- you know, uh, uncomfortable, but I should have the confidence that Ehud had here.
0: I hope you've appreciated the study we uh, conducted of Ehud tonight, and next week we will transition to our sixth ranked judge on uh, this process, and we hope you'll come back to study with us. And we hope that as we study God's word, it will prick your heart to be obedient to the Lord in whatever fashion that you need to be. And, and though we don't offer uh, the invitation in the normal capacity of having an invitation song to follow, we want you to know that if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation in any way, shape, or form, we are here to receive that even after this closing prayer. So would you bow with me as we close out our worship tonight? Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for all that you've done for us, and we know the book of Judges reminds us that you are compassionate and merciful all the time. Lord, we don't want to take that for granted, but we don't want to overlook that attribute of yours either. We praise you and thank you for that. And Lord, help us to, like these great judges we'll read about, to be willing to be used by you, to have the courage to stand up for you, and and, and to be uh, fulfillers of your will. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray.